Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam! This is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Our focus today is on a small shop in Jacksonville, Florida, fittingly called Jacksonville Precision Manufacturing. Juan March is the owner, and what I'm excited to talk about with him today is his passion for robotic educational programs. Juan has been deeply involved with FIRST, Dean Kamen's high school robotic competition, initially as a participant and then as a volunteer, and that was in several roles as well. He also competed in several NASA robotic competitions in college and then parlayed that into a job where he designed and manufactured, guess what, a robot for pipelining applications. Deeply hands-on, He finally went into business for himself in 2019. And what I like is that Juan has been a buyer of parts first. So he understands the customer perspective. He knows what the customer is looking for. Let's begin. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Juan. Hey, Jay. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation. To get us going, though, one of the things that you shared before the show is that you're a big hiker yet you're in Florida. Not a lot of challenging hikes in Florida. Where do you go to scratch that itch? Yeah, that is the case. There's not that much, I guess, uh, height-based hiking to do in Florida. There's still definitely some distance-based hiking, but uh, when I do it, I prefer to usually go out west to uh, Washington or Oregon, you know, something with a little more little more height, a little more upward challenge, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and less mosquitoes too. And do you camp out overnight when you're doing that? Yeah, typically. Like the last hike that I did was around Mount Hood in Oregon. That was a four-day, three-night hike. So we camped out in the woods every night for that hike. How long was that? It was four days, three nights. And self-supported? 
Yeah, yeah, it was me and uh, one friend. So we were out there. We brought all of our food, brought the tents, brought the sleeping bags, you know, everything. Do you have to put your food up to keep it away from bears? Is that it, an issue there? It depends where you are. I believe at Mount Hood, you're supposed to. We did. If you're in somewhere like Grand Teton or something like that, you definitely need to because there's tons of bears out there. But, uh, you know, at Mount Hood, there's a, uh, I guess you could argue that it's not that important, but, you know, there's rodents everywhere at least. So mm-hmm. you kind of want to hang a bag regardless of where you go. Yeah, you want to have your food last. Definitely. <laughs> Before we get into the typical job shop stuff, I wanted to ask you about a venture you've had going for a little while called All Peaks. What is All Peaks? All Peaks is kind of a side project of mine that's still somewhat based in manufacturing, but it's a little more artistic. There's no tolerances to hit, <laughs> so it's a, little, it's a little easier. But basically, it started uh, when I was still at my day job. I had access to the equipment after hours. And I wanted to be able to make something to, to bring in some cash. And frankly, I wanted it to, to be easy <laughs> in terms of the manufacturing. All Peaks makes basically aluminum sculptures of, of mountains and lakes and other kind of geographic features that people identify with. So we've got mountains like Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, Fuji, all, all kinds of stuff. And basically we sell to hikers and campers and, and generally outdoorsy type people. And they can get them custom engraved with uh, dates and quotes and stuff like that. So people, a lot of times, will you know propose to their wife or whatever on top of a mountain. Oh wow! They'll that, yeah, they'll get that like date engraved on the bottom. So it's a uh, it's a different like very kind of personalized gift because you know whenever you go to like a gift shop at a national park, you've basically got like t-shirts and keychains to choose from. Mm-hmm. So uh, these are a lot different. They're a lot more personal, I think. How big are they? How do you make them? So when I first started making them, they were six inches in diameter. And I found that those probably took way too long on the machine to kind of sell at a profit because, mm-hmm. you know, they were probably two hours to make a piece. So now I'm making them in a in three inch diameter, which kind of fits in the palm of your hand, but you can still see a, a lot of the ridge lines and, and kind of uh, small details of mountains. Hmm. So yeah, I sell those for 78 a piece on my, on my website. And uh, that's a lot more attainable for most folks. Are they machined then? Are they machined? Yes, they're, they're 3D machined. So it's kind of cool because they all start with the exact same two pieces of material. There's kind of a base and there's a top and the top is actually the mountain. So mm-hmm. I've got something like 140 SKUs in that product line right now. And they're all made out of the same two pieces of material. So same fixtures, same everything. It's just a different program in the machine. How do you get the data to create the particular mountain. So that's pretty cool. That's all actually publicly available. It was collected mm-hmm. by the uh, space shuttle in the year 2000. I guess they put like a LIDAR or some kind of radar technology on the bottom of the space shuttle and they circled the globe, I guess, probably hundreds of times, just just scanning the entire country, mm-hmm. actually the entire world. But uh, they scanned the United States in what they call, I believe, a one-third arc second detail, which is just the resolution. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world is scanned in like one arc second or something like that. So it's less sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you can you can go and download all that data. It's all in, what do they call it? Like point cloud or something like that. And you can basically, through a series of softwares, I think I used four or five different software technologies. You can translate that into 3D models and load it into Inventor or Fusion or whatever CAM system you use. So you take the point cloud data and put it into a format that you can put ToolPass onto. And it, that may be several steps. Exactly, yep. And once you've done it, you have that file and you can keep making it over and over again. Correct. Yeah. I just, I actually just post-process that, you know, I put all the cam operations in and they're pretty much all the same and I post-process it and they're all on my machine right now, actually. So I can turn around and, and hit program 104 and that translates into whatever SKU that is. <laughs> yeah. 
do you have some popular mountains that you know you can sell and you just run those when you have some free time? Yeah, there's definitely bestsellers like Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, the Yosemite Peaks, most of my international ones, they all sell pretty well. So I keep a few of those in stock. They do take up some space, so I try not to uh, make a whole bunch of them. But yeah, I can pretty much rely on, on some of them to sell. That's excellent. I, I always thought it'd be fun to have a product to sell and never could come up with anything in my own shop. So congratulations. Yeah, yeah that's kind of why I was excited about these too, because, you know, there's a lot of people who make like pocket knives or keychains or coasters, you know, a lot of, mm-hmm. lot of common stuff like that. And I didn't really want to compete in those kind of super saturated markets because marketing is a massive component of it when you're doing that. Because mm-hmm. you've got to compete against people who are already established. So I really wanted to do something that was totally different. So do you have a website for all peaks? Is that how you market it? Yep. I've got a website. It's uh, allpeaks.com mm-hmm. and that's A-L-P-E-A-K-S.com. And I've also got a guy out in California who does my Google ads and uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram ads, stuff like that. And some email marketing here and there, but that's a little difficult to keep up with, you know. You ever put it on Etsy? Yep. They're on Etsy. Back to typical chop shop stuff. <laughs> Jacksonville Precision Manufacturing. Why did you open your own shop? You had a good job. Yeah, well, I wanted to for a while. I've been watching guys on YouTube like John Saunders and, and, and Grimsmo and all those people that you're probably mm-hmm. aware of. And it just looked like a blast to have my own machine and, and make my own parts and have my own customers and build the shop from kind of a facility standpoint that looked really fun to me. And I had wanted to do it for a while, but that nearly 20 grand down payment on a machine plus everything else that comes with it, like tooling and stuff was just kind of out of reach for a long time. So yeah, I got a job. I went to college for uh, mechanical engineering, got a couple internships. One of them was at a company called SipTech, and I actually started working for them after I graduated. I graduated on a Friday and, and went to work full-time on a Monday, and it was definitely getting probably overpaid for my qualifications and my age, but it made the, it made the job shop happen, basically. That plus my activities after hours on their machines. I was able to build up enough money for the down payment and some tools and, and whatnot. And, uh, and I got hooked up with uh, some free shop space with a buddy of mine, which is actually prob- probably ah. the, the, the thing that tipped the scale finally. <laughs> free shop space is always, a- yes. Yes. He, he gave me like, incredibly valuable. Yeah, yeah. He gave me 400 or 500 square feet or something like that. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's plenty to put a VF2 in and, and just get going. He owns his own company and he was kind of guaranteeing me work too. So I had the security of work coming in and a spot to put the machine and, mm-hmm. and the, you know, I have, I've got a girlfriend and basically if anything bad happened, she could pay the rent. So, <laughs> so it all, it all kind of aligned and, and made it work. Sounds like the financial part of it was perhaps what kept you from starting it earlier. Is there anything else that required a leap of faith, a act of courage to get going? Like I said, I knew I wanted to do it, but the main thing, yeah, was the shop space. I went and looked at shop spaces and everybody wants you to sign a three-year lease or more, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, yeah. I can't, I can't put myself on the hook for 1500 bucks a month in rent for three years and not knowing what's going to happen, you know, because mm-hmm. anything could happen and then, and then you're on the hook for it. So. And you have to personally guarantee it when you're small. Correct. Yep. What surprised you about opening a shop that you didn't think about before you actually did it? It's probably all of the expenses that look small at first mm. and then add up to uh, to not such a small expense, you know, just tooling and end mills. And then, you know, you're like, oh, I forgot I need to get the torque wrench to tighten my ER collets and I need to get, get shop rags and I need to get just, you know, anything. 
like it's all small uh hundred dollar ten dollar expenses that can easily add up to, to thousands of dollars and, and max out all your credit cards <laughs> pretty quickly I know exactly what you mean. When I started rapid machining, we could have started it from scratch, but we ended up purchasing a very small shop and I called it a shop in a box. Mm -hmm. It had all the things that you were just talking about. I remember there was some really specialized inspection equipment that knew was probably worth $100,000, but use maybe he could have gotten ten thousand for it yeah <laughs> and but so but those are the types of things that just yeah the expense that you didn't really put into the quote that you end up having to shell out some cash for yep so that surprised you what was the hardest part of opening a shop probably the kind of initial organization and getting your workflows down like when you've got your machine just placed and you're not quite sure where to put your tables and where to put your computer and how you're going to organize your tools. And you have to be making parts at the same time because now you've got this machine to pay for and you, you, you know, you've got parts that need to get made. So you're squeezed pretty tight in terms of like of your time and trying to be productive, even though you've got, you know, just kind of minute details to work out at the same time. That's definitely a challenge. You grew up with computers, with probably almost a smartphone. So technology is just that, that's just how you look at the world. I'm curious how and what tools you use on the front end or anything to make yourself more efficient to save time so that you're really focused on making parts. What are the key pieces of software technology, however you want to describe that? Sure. So we do CAM and CAD and uh, Autodesk Inventor. And we've got a bunch of templates worked out in there that help keep us productive. So I can pretty much load a part into the machine or into the cam system rather, set up my like stock size and then right click and load my template up. And it's got pretty much all of my common operations. So I can usually take a simple part from nothing to, to fully programmed in less than five or 10 minutes. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like I said, that's for a simple part, you, you know, with a more complex part, it could take a couple hours or, or whatever it is. But uh, a lot of what I do is kind of small. Uh, one-off like brackets and just small parts for automated machines. I can do most of those off cam templates pretty quickly. How many tools in your tool changer? I've got a 30 plus one. So I've got a Renishaw probe in there too, which helps a lot. How does that help? That helps just uh, setting work offsets. So, you know, when I first started CNC machining, it was on a Haas mini mill. Mm -hmm. We had a, a Heimer touch probe, which is basically a three axis kind of manual probe. Mm -hmm. So you can find, you know, your corner of your part and the top of your part. And that's a lot faster than something even more traditional, like an edge finder, but there's mm -hmm. still a lot of, uh, a lot of manual jogging involved in that and kind of manual math to find centers of parts and stuff like that. So that could take you, that could take pretty easily five minutes to find a work offset. Whereas with a, uh, with a Renishaw probe, you can find your work offset in, in five or 10 seconds pretty easily after you jog down to the part mm -hmm. so that speeds you up a lot. I have heard the Renishaw probes, but we did not use those. What's the cost of one of those? I think in a Haas machine, if you buy your Haas new and you get the probing option, that's mm -hmm. probably uh, three or $4,000, I think. And that gives you a work coordinate offset probe, which is the spindle probe. And it also gives you a tool setting probe. 
So you mm -hmm. can find your lengths and your diameters of tools. You don't have to do any of that manually anymore. Sounds like you can pay that back pretty quickly. Oh yeah, yeah, very quickly. And then if you ram your probe into a part, which mm -hmm. uh, I haven't done yet, thankfully, you can get just you can get just a spindle probe replaced for like fifteen hundred, I think, if you return your old one. Yeah, that never happens, right? Yeah, yeah never. Not in my <laughs> shop. <laughs> did, did you buy your machine tool new, and are you using Haas? Yep, I've got I've got a Haas VF two right now, and I did buy it new. I did look at used machines. But I just wasn't really sure if I wanted to weigh that risk of, of buying a used machine and saving 30 grand or something like that, mm -hmm. and then having an issue with the spindle or something, you know, because that could easily sink you in your early days. If you've spent all your money getting the machine and you've got it for a month and your spindle goes out, you've got a five grand expense that you can't cover. I didn't really want to risk that. I kind of wanted to just do the payments and, and have the, the warranty, you know. I think that's a really wise move because beyond all the solid positives, which you just mentioned, the technology is actually changing so fast in machine tools mm -hmm. and the iron's the same, but what they're doing with the software is making the machines run faster and saving you time in multiple different ways. So a new machine, it just makes sure you're using the latest and greatest and you're set up for success. So, yep, definitely. Yeah. And we've also, of course, got a Paperless parts as a new addition to kind of our productivity technology slash software. And paperless has basically helped us speed up quoting probably easily 100% because most of the work is done for me already. <laughs> and how is it done for you? So paperless semi-automates our quoting process. So my customers can actually get on my website and click uh, get a quote, mm -hmm. upload their parts, uh, their 3D files and their prints directly to my website. And then I can get on basically the back end of paperless on my side and I can see all the files they've uploaded and mm -hmm. paperless will actually generate a quote for me, a, a price for that part based on how many operations there is, what kind of features are on the part, size of the part. Basically all I do is I go to McMaster car or Alro or any of my other material vendors and I get a material price, put the material mm -hmm. in there and paperless can do that for me, but I choose to do it myself just because I've got local vendors that I use here. Do your customers like the ability to upload files on your website as opposed to sending you an email? Some of them definitely do. Yeah. There's kind of a, a generational divide, of course, like a lot of, a lot of older buyers and stuff, they're kind of mm -hmm. stuck on their ways of, of just email and that's fine because I can put the files on paperless myself and, and still get the same benefits. So it just takes me a couple minutes longer, but uh, younger engineers, younger customers, they definitely like to uh, not talk to anybody and kind of get that, uh, like <laughs> that, yeah, that, that more Amazon experience where they just get on, they upload their files and they get a quote back. Like they don't have to pick up the phone. How do you know when they've uploaded files that there's something ready to be quoted? So I get an email notification. That's typically how I will find out. But if you've got two or three monitors on your computer, you can also leave paperless up on one and uh, you'll get a notification in the system too. Cool. I want to get back to quoting because you wrote a great blog on that. But I have some more questions on how you're set up because, again, you're trying to be super efficient. You chose the Autodesk product for the CAD and the CAM. Why Autodesk? Why not one of the other systems that's been around? Well, I've been in I've been in the Autodesk environment for man since since high school, so mm -hmm. like eight years now or something. And I started out in, in AutoCAD, which is more of a two D modeling system. It's more for like architectural type stuff and, and kind of more old school uh, blueprint drawing. Mm -hmm. And then I got into uh, Autodesk Inventor in college in in a robotics team that I was on. And kind of just stayed there ever since. I've also tried SolidWorks and, and NX, but I find Inventor to be 
a lot more intuitive than the other ones. And uh, the price is also pretty good. I think a year of Inventor with the manufacturing package, which includes CAM and uh, a few other software suites that I don't use as much. I think it's like 1500 a year or something like that. So that's is, a uh, subscription-based. It is, yeah. And it also comes with Fusion 360, that same package, which which I don't use that much. I do like Fusion, but I find it to be a little more clunky than Inventor. What is, it, what is the difference between the two? Inventor is... So I guess you could say it's Autodesk's. It's a little older of a product. It's more for like like designing assemblies and, and things like that. Whereas Fusion is more for for single parts. You can do assemblies in Fusion, but the way that they've got it set up is just it's just kind of odd. It doesn't really make sense to me. Hmm. So whenever I design a fixture, it's nice to to have Inventor because I'm familiar with the way that assemblies work in an Inventor, and I can design my fixtures and put in my my clamps and all that stuff with ease. The customers are they always sending you? 3D files or is it a mixture of 2D and 3D or what do you see out there these days? It's a mix. I I try to encourage all my customers to send 3D files, but I do have some that will send me just just PDFs, which I can work with those. That's fine. But it's nice to have the 3D because it's a little more intuitive that way when you can rotate the part in 3D and, and compare it to the model. You just see things that you don't otherwise see in 2D sometimes. Do you charge more when someone just sends you 2D, even subconsciously? Maybe. You, you could probably say the same thing about certain customers. I might subconsciously charge more for certain customers, especially those who, who don't make it as easy on me to, to work with them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think all shops have that factor built in somehow into their pricing. And one of the ways that customers can make it easy for you to do business is by paying with credit cards. And I know you've got mixed feelings about credit cards, accepting that for payments. So tell me your thoughts on credit cards first. Sure. Yeah. So, so credit cards are great for a number of reasons, mainly because when, it, when a customer pays with credit card, you've basically got your money right now, which is always great in business. You don't really want to wait for net 30 and stuff like that if you can help it. Mm-hmm. The drawback, of course, is that you're paying that credit card fee, which can be you know up to up to 3% or 3.5% or so, depending on which, uh, which card your customer uses. And mm-hmm. you know when you're, when you're getting an invoice paid, that's $5,000 and you have to pay 3% on it. It kind of hurts looking at that, the fact that you just got paid a uh, 150 bucks or whatever it is just to get paid, you know? Sure. Do you know which customers pay by credit card or does that vary? Can you plan, I guess is my question. You certainly could plan. I've got some customers that kind of mix it up. Most of my customers tend to do uh, ACH transfers or checks, mm-hmm. but uh, some of my, I guess, newer, younger companies, they tend to use credit cards more often than not. Where I'm going with that is a strategy which I know you can implement in paperless parts is to, if the payment terms are set for credit card, just multiply the final price by the credit card fee and therefore they're paying for it. Yep. Yeah. I actually have done that too. I've got a, I've got my paperless set up with a 5% credit card fee. Mm -hmm. So that covers the fee. Kind of the issue that I run into that is disclosing to the customer that you are uh, charging them a credit card fee. Some of them don't like that. Do you break that out separately or just include it in the price? Well, I, I tend to try to give them the option. I, I kind of say, hey, you can pay with a credit card, but there's a fee attached to it. So if you want to save 3%, we prefer check or ACH or mm. wire. Yeah, we took credit cards and we never told folks we were doing that. And Yeah, maybe that's a better strategy. Seemed to work. We, we got paid <laughs> a lot. We, we had a lot of credit cards come through. So the other thing that you mentioned just in terms of 
figuring out how to run your shop, you watched a lot of YouTube videos. And I'd love to talk to you about learning how you capture that information. It sounds like YouTube's one of the ways. What are other ways that you bring new knowledge about manufacturing into your shop? Yeah, YouTube University is definitely a, a big proponent of learning about new technologies. Uh, mm -hmm. I also subscribe to a lot of the big machine tool manufacturer and tooling company and newsletters. So mm -hmm. like OSG, they'll send something out every month or so. They make a lot of taps and drills and some gauging equipment too. They're one of my favorite companies. So I try to keep up to date with whatever they're coming out with. And yeah, like, like I think Haas sends a, like three emails a day or something ridiculous like that. So I'm very well aware of whatever Haas is coming out with. Anything else besides those newsletters and YouTube? Are you on Instagram, Facebook, any other social media? Yeah, very active on Instagram. That's great because... There's a lot of people just like me, kind of one-person operations or smaller shops that uh, they're always buying new tools, trying new things. So I get to keep up with, with whatever's working for them. So that's always helpful. Part of your ability, Juan, to, I guess, gain the confidence in manufacturing and leadership and machining or your introduction, and maybe it was even before high school, but definitely participating in the first competitions in high school and then being involved as a volunteer, then also being involved in other robotic competitions in college. So I'd love to really jump into first first because that is such a great program to introduce high school students to a STEM curriculum where it's hands-on, where they're part of a team, just like a, a sports team. So let me turn it over to you. Perhaps you could start with what is FIRST. So FIRST is a robotics competition that involves high school participants and usually college or older uh, sort of mentors. Mm -hmm. Basically every year, they've got a new game. Usually they involve like a robot picking up a ball and shooting it into a hoop or, or something like that, or, or flipping a lever. So every year the game's different. There's teams from all over the country. There's probably thousands of teams and they're all working towards basically the same goal, the same game. And they all build a, a robot to accomplish a task. And they've got a regional competitions and, and they all basically filter to, to the national competition at the end of the year where these teams compete to basically see who can score the most points. When did you first join a first team? I joined a first team, I believe it was my junior year of high school. So that would have been probably 2012. And basically back then, to be honest with you, I was kind of getting my volunteer hours because you need them for a college scholarship here okay. in Florida. And then that kind of transitioned to basically a volunteer role in college where I was doing some judging, a lot of events set up and tear down and that sort of thing. So would you describe your first year, if you remember clearly enough, what the objective was, what the robot had to do, and really what the different roles of the students are in the team, because I know there's so many different roles. I just want the audience to get a real flavor for how big this is. Sure. Yeah. If I remember correctly, I believe my first year, the objective was for the robots to pick up uh, Frisbees off the ground. And this is in an enclosed course that's probably 50 feet by by 25 feet or so mm -hmm. and there's uh there's frisbees on the ground and the robots had to scoop them up and then launch them across the field into a small slot so you had uh 
team is basically making robots with a camera vision on them that could track a tiny slot across the field and launch a frisbee into it which is you know it's pretty cool it's pretty advanced stuff for for high school kids to be doing but as far as team roles it's pretty varied there's some people kind of like me who were involved in it for for kind of volunteering aspects to get volunteer hours and we would do a lot of events set up like fundraising events set up things like that and then there's the more sort of technical engineering oriented students who were doing a lot of actual hands-on cranking the milling machine making parts designing the robots things like that so it's mechanical electrical electronics software yeah, controls all that stuff all of it yeah and roughly how many people were on the team at your high school? Quite a lot. The team I was almost called the pink team. And it was actually a kind of a conglomeration of two or three high schools, I, I want to say. So we probably mm. had easily 50 kids on that team. Wow. And that was probably a pretty big team. They, they can go down to as, as small as, as five or six kids pretty easily. And what sort of adults were volunteering? How did the outside community help the high school students? So we were actually pretty fortunate because those two high schools were uh, situated within a few miles of NASA. So we had, oh. uh, yeah, like NASA engineering parents and, and, and dads and whatnot that were mentors. It seems almost unfair. Yeah, yeah, a little bit unfair. <laughs> but it's a great benefit for the kids because they've all got actual engineers who were there helping mm-hmm. out. You know, you've got parents who just want to hang out with their kids who were there doing more of the uh, kind of event setup and tear down and and like going to pick up snacks before events and stuff like that, more of those roles. And then, yeah, you had, you had actual parents who were engineers who were there to help out too. You transitioned to a volunteer role and you did a bunch of different things. First is a nonprofit and it's totally dependent upon volunteers. What sort of things did you do? Perhaps it sounds like you might've started even in high school. And you continued through college. Could you just talk about those? Yeah. In college, as kind of a volunteer, you just, you're all over the place. You're judging. A portion of the competition is for students to produce an engineering notebook, which has all of their design considerations and drawings Mm. and stuff like that in it. So you might be reviewing those and grading them. You might be running around, like say a a robot went rogue and knocked something down on the field. You might go reset that and and put it back where it's supposed to be at a competition spec or helping people find the bathroom, you know, just any, anything, (laughs) just making, just making events run smoothly is, is the biggest role a volunteer has, at least on competition day. When the teams were building the robots, getting organized, you were a mentor to more than one team, weren't you? So in, in college, I was a mentor mostly to uh, team resistance because I, I moved up north to go to college. So I was, I was not with pink team anymore. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, had a, I have a buddy who actually, I don't remember his exact title, but he's basically the coordinator for, for first in Northeast Florida. Mm-hmm. And he's got a small machine shop in town that, that kids can basically just run wild in and make parts and, and really get hands-on experience making robots work. So over there, I would spend a lot of time at his shop and just help kids make parts, basically. I didn't do any programming or anything like that at that point, but a lot of just hanging out with the high schoolers and helping them make parts and giving them ideas. What would a shop owner who wants to get involved, what ways can he or she be involved, their shop be involved, perhaps even team members at the shop? How could they contribute if they wanted to make first stronger in their local community and support their high school? 
Yeah, if you've got a shop and you've got some free time on weekends, maybe a few hours on Saturday or something like that, I think that having a first team at your shop and showing them basically how parts are made and what kind of design considerations that uh, students seem to be making when they're designing parts, that can be tremendously helpful. You know, just showing them what manufacturing technology is really like. Mm-hmm. They've got no idea when they first start out. We were fortunate, rapid, I say we, to be located in New Hampshire where Dean Kamen is located and where he started the initial competitions. So it's a pretty strong group up here and Rapid supported several high school teams. So I'm just throwing these out as ways that I looked at it as a shop owner, not just one high school. We gave money to high schools. Mm -hmm. We opened up a space in the shop to one team that didn't have space so that they could build their robots and try them out because you need a fair amount of space to throw a Frisbee, right? You do. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And and that can be tremendously helpful for a shop too, because you basically have the chance to kind of uh, mentor and and nurture these high schoolers through college. Mm -hmm. And then you have the potential to hire these kids that you've been working on basically for years, you know, so Mm -hmm. you can kind of scope them into really valuable employees and then then give them good jobs when they graduate. We also have a large defense contractor in the city where we were in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. And as you said, NASA, well, a lot of the kids' parents worked for the defense contractor or other companies in the area. And so these folks got a little more familiar with Rapid, and I think we probably got some business out of it as well. Although I can't give you specific examples. It certainly, if nothing else, created goodwill in the community. Right. We also had several employees, and I'll give a shout out to Scott Treecarton, who was incredibly involved with one of the teams. And they went to work during the day. And then during the season, as you know, it, it's all hands on deck. There's a lot of hours. You can be there till midnight or beyond. And he, he put in a ton of hours over several years, just helping this team, helping the students and the input of somebody who actually understood how parts are made was extremely valuable uh, as well as he was on the younger side. So I think he's a little more relatable than perhaps in, in some of the older parents who were involved. So many different ways a shop and the folks at a shop can, can get involved. I just can't say enough about this program. It I think is probably the single biggest contributor to pushing kids into the STEM fields in college who might not otherwise have considered them. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and pretty much every team needs a machine shop to partner with because it, mm. machine shops kind of make the competition happen. You know, otherwise kids are trying to put together like PVC pipes and stuff like that to make their robots, which they, they really need the support of a shop to, to make something great. And I'll throw out there, if you are a sheet metal shop or a fabricator and you have a laser or water jet, oh boy, you... <laughs> Your your services are very much desired. (laughs) Your robotic career didn't end when you left high school. You participated in something which I wasn't familiar with, the NASA Robotic Mining Competition. What is that? The Robotic Mining Competition is held at the Kennedy Space Center every year, or it was before COVID hit at least. And basically that competition centers around mining on Mars or on the moon. So kind of the the premise is they eventually want to put humans on Mars and then they want to bring humans back from Mars Mm. with fuel made on Mars. 
Mm-hmm. So they're basically trying to develop the best possible mining technology to, to mine raw minerals off the surface of Mars and, and turn that stuff into fuel. Did they have specific robots each year that they had you designed for the competition? Can you just describe, say, one of the years where you participated? Yeah, the competition is is pretty much the same every year. You start on the first third of the field, and then you cross into the uh, the middle of the obstacle or the mining arena, which is filled with like craters and and large rocks that your robot has to either go over or uh, around. And on, on the far side, you can actually mine up to, I think, a meter deep. And then uh, you collect your material and you bring it back through the obstacle field and you dump it in a in a hopper and they weigh that. And that's how you score your points. But <laughs> the only uh, limitations you have in that competition are uh, weight and size, like volumetric size. So you've got dimensions that you have to be within. And I think mm-hmm. you can't be over uh, 80 kilograms and you get additional points for any weight under 80 kilos. How did your teams do? So we did it for three years. Our first year, I believe we placed 21st out of 50 teams. Mm-hmm. And then the next year we placed 11th and our third year we placed fourth. So wow. we, we improved every year. So that's, that's what's cool. Were you taking the same design and refining it or did you start from scratch? Totally different every year. Hmm. Yep. I guess our first and third year robots were somewhat similar, but the design and engineering behind the third one was just miles ahead of the first one. <laughs> How many on the team? We had probably up to up to eight people or so. And it's kind of the same thing with first. You've got those teammates who were more on the engineering side and you've got other teammates who were kind of really kind of there for, for hanging out and, and mm-hmm. getting some exposure, but maybe not doing as much of the actual engineering and manufacturing and stuff like that. Are there any other college robotic competitions that you're familiar with? Yeah, there's tons of them. Another one that I'm familiar with, I didn't take part in it, but uh, I had some friends that were doing it was uh, the Robo Sub competition out in California. And I think that one's put on by uh, the Navy and they build submarines that have to basically traverse an obstacle course and and shoot torpedoes at targets and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. those are in the ballpark of about two or three feet long and and maybe a foot around in diameter. Is the competition field the actual ocean or is it a pool or where do they do that? I guess the Navy has this giant swimming pool. It's like, uh, man, probably 50 feet deep and like 150 feet in diameter or something like that. And that's where they held the competition at. (laughs) I I, I guess they test things there. Sure. Well, thank you so much for all you did with FIRST. And that's wonderful. You continue sort of in the giving space by writing blog posts and sharing your ideas with the manufacturing community. And one you put up recently was on buying from a local shop versus buying from an instant quoting platform. Why'd you write that? I wrote that particular blog post after working with a particular customer who basically what happened is I I had to fix a number of of parts that were made by instant quoting platforms, which is fine because I make some money out of it. But Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that actually tipped the scale into writing that that blog post was, I'm on Zometry, I'm a Zometry partner, and I quoted a job for this particular customer of mine. And uh, I was looking through the Zometry job board, and I found that job on Zometry, and I accepted it. And I, I completed the job myself and shipped it. Mm-hmm. But I actually got paid more for that job doing it through Zometry than what I quoted my customer. And I kind of think that basically why that job went to Zometry, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, it's probably just the ease of uploading your part and, and putting your credit card info in. I'm not really sure that customer knew that I could pretty much do the same thing for them. But basically, they spent more money to get the same part from the same person in the same amount of time. And they were local to you? And they're local, yeah. <laughs> I, can, yeah. I, can, I can drive to them <laughs> in, in 25 minutes. <laughs> you wrote in the 
blog post beyond the points that you just raised that the instant quoting platforms don't create the same interactions and opportunity for a young engineer to learn. And what are your thoughts there? Why do you think it's important for particularly younger engineers to interact with the shops that they're working with? Yeah. So I'll start with my first year in in college. I had an intro to engineering class Mm -hmm. and there were students in that class who you know, are in their intro to engineering and they've never picked up a wrench or a hammer <laughs> and turned a screw. And these people are going through school and they're only going to class. They're not doing any extracurriculars and they don't teach you in, in class how to design parts effectively and how to design things that can actually be made in reality. So you've got people coming into school, not knowing how to pick up a hammer and they graduate pretty much in the same spot. And then suddenly they've got jobs where they have to design parts and get them made and they can upload this parts to Zometry and Zometry is going to say, yeah, sure. Give us a thousand bucks and you can have this part. That's not really manufacturable. And then a week goes by and Zometry emails them and they're like, Hey, we can't find anyone to make your part. Where do you want to go from here? So kind of my view is that if those young engineers are working with an actual shop who wants to do business with them, they can have one-on-ones with machinists and actual people who make parts. Mm-hmm. And they can really learn what they can and can't do as far as part design goes. And I just don't think that they get that from a lot of the big quoting platforms. That and there's just a a human connection too. Like, you know, if you get in a pinch, say an engineer gets in a pinch and he's like, hey, I really need this part tomorrow. Can you help me out? Mm -hmm. He can can probably get that from a shop that he works closely with. He probably can't from a big quoting platform. So, you know, people always say it's kind of who you know, not what you know. I think that kind of, it's kind of the same, same idea here. Mm -hmm. You were saying that prototyping is the art of compromise and it's probably hard to figure out what to compromise on if you're not having conversations with the shop who's making your parts. Yep. And change orders, those never happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, change orders. I've gotten calls from Zometry on Zometry jobs saying like, hey, a customer wants a change order. I can tell them no, but you know, if, if there's anything you can do, we'd appreciate the help. I can say no and, and kind of, I guess you could say, screw these people out of their money after they wanted to make a change order that they're locked into now. But mm-hmm. you know, when it's my customers, I might be a little more lenient. <laughs> right, right. And what other advantages are there for working with the local shop or the communications or what other disadvantages do you see? I'd say with a local shop, one of the biggest advantages is you get a a consistent experience as far as quality and lead times and and kind of buying experience goes. You know what to expect because you've got the same shop making your parts every time. If you submit your parts to a platform like Zometry, you have a different person making your parts every single time. Maybe that's not a huge deal to you, but in a lot of facilities, they want their parts to be exactly the same in terms of surface finish and appearance and stuff like that. Mm every time. So that's a thing. I guess one of the advantages or disadvantages of working with a local shop sometimes can be capacity. So like me, I actually just got one of the biggest purchase orders of my career so far, and it's going to completely stretch my capacity to the max for probably three weeks. And if they went with a large quoting platform, they could have subbed that job out to six different shops and gotten their parts faster. Mm -hmm. So that's a fair disadvantage. On the flip side though, you just raised a good point. If they get parts from six different shops, then they're probably going to have six different looks to the part as well. Even they're yeah, all they, part of the same assembly. Yeah, they, they might be dimensionally identical if their prints are well-defined. But yeah, I mean, everyone's going to use a different tool to cut the same part, you know? So right. it's going to be different. Yeah, different 
tool marks, mm-hmm. just whether you're somebody maybe bead blasts it, things like that. Correct. The other allure, though, of the instant quoting platforms is the instant. Correct. And yep. what do you think is a reasonable amount of time for quote turnaround for your shop? I try to be, especially with newer customers, as quick as possible within a couple hours if it's feasible. Mm-hmm. But if I can't do that, say if it's kind of a weird material that's going to take a little while to get a quote on, I will at least reach out to the customer and say, hey, got your quote. We're working on this. Just waiting on a material quote. So, you know, you, I think it's reasonable for an engineer to wait a couple hours for their quote. You just said something interesting in that if it's a new customer, you try to respond faster. And mm-hmm. that's a question or a dilemma that every shop faces. Do I prioritize my existing customers, but I want new customers? How do I prioritize the new customers? And for you, it sounds like you're maybe not prioritizing, but you recognize the sensitivity of making a good first impression. But why do you try to get back to those folks in particular really quickly. So with new customers, I mean, people always say fast quotes win jobs. And yeah, it's just making a good first impression. You want them to know that you're attentive. Uh, You want them to know what they can expect in terms of email responsiveness. If I send somebody an email and they take two days to respond, I don't have any desire to work with that person, you know? So I want my potential new customers to know that they can email me or call me and I'm going to pick up the phone Mm -hmm. or I'm going to email them back and answer their question immediately. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much, like you said, it's not, it's not really prioritizing new customers. It's putting on that good first impression. And I kind of think that once I get customers in my ecosystem, they sort of tend to stay around. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've got a little bit more leeway with existing customers kind of because they know that I'm going to get to them and they know that the parts are going to be quality when they get them and I'm going to meet lead times. Well, I think you make a good point in that you get to know your customers and some customers, if you got a quote back in two days, That's absolutely acceptable. But Mm -hmm. until you start working with the customer, you want to assume that they want to quote really fast. And then as you develop the relationship, you know, which ones will maintain that expectation for a quick turn on the quote and which ones it's not as important. So if a shop is looking for new customers, we see this all the time that If you quote a new customer a week after they send the quote in, they're scratching their heads saying, why did they even bother sending the quote back? Yes, yes. (laughs) I already Sometimes I already have my parts. I'm not even kidding. I sent a request for quote to a company back in August of last year, and I got my quote in February of this year. So five-month turnaround on quote. I'm like, why did you even send I, I saw the email come in, and I was like, who, who is this person? Yeah. What, what you know, parts are these? <laughs> it, it makes you look worse than almost a... Yeah, I would have rather been ignored than get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it got lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I could have just assumed it was an email issue or something, but... <laughs> right, right. Well, this has been a lot of fun chatting with you, Juan. I want to throw out there, are there any questions you have for me? Anything I might be able to help you out with? I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while. I think I've heard a lot of your answers to a lot of the common questions people ask you. (laughs) I'm definitely interested in how you guys built Rapid into what it was, and I guess sort of still what it is in its new form, right? Well, I've thought a lot about that over the years, and a lot of different factors, but at the end, there were lots and lots of team members and it wasn't me directly involved right. in any way at that point 
beyond making some course corrections. And what I figured out, and I just wrote a blog post on it, was that we created a culture. We actually changed the standard manufacturing floor culture where typically innovation and trying something new is punished uh, sometimes right. or frowned upon. Or if you fail, then it is a black mark and you are chastised for it. And I just am always excited about trying something new, trying to make something better, trying to figure out how to use the team members' knowledge and have them spend it on that rather than doing something repetitive that is boring and dull and just doesn't take advantage of their talent. So we're constantly trying to figure out different ways to do things. And we created that culture of, of innovation. And it really came from me in that if someone failed, they were congratulated on trying. And then the question was, well, what are you going to do next? Rather than why did you do that? And if it doesn't start from the top down, if you don't have that desire for everyone to be the best that they can to come into the workplace with a fresh set of eyes, and particularly in really in, in their roles, they have the best set of eyes for trying to figure out how to make something better. You got to get everyone involved. And I think that was a big part of the recipe for success. So I, I'm so proud of everyone on the team and what they contributed in, in making Rapid the company that we became and, and still are. Yeah. How did you sort of pick those people in the early days? Well, most came from the existing industry and we had to change the mindsets. So they, was it just like a kind of traditional hiring process? Yeah. Yeah, we needed we needed sheet metal mechanics. We needed press brake operators. We needed people to run the punch press and the laser. And these were people, in many cases, who had worked at a lot of other shops or at least been in the industry for quite a while. And they really had never been asked to think about ways to make their job better. Yeah, which is crazy because these are the people doing it every day. So they probably got a lot of good ideas. Yeah. So it wasn't that we went out and we were super picky on hiring people. We just created that culture. Some people want to do it. Some people don't. And that that's fine. Everybody has their, has their role in their place. But the ones who really wanted to, there were several folks who started out in shipping who became leaders and managers at Rapid. And it's just because they had a hunger and the desire to do more. Yeah, I've heard people saying that whenever, you know, these are, these are business owners and whenever they go out to say a restaurant and they see somebody hustling <laughs> just, to, just to move plates and stuff like that, they'll leave a business card or something on the table just because uh, uh, there's, there's certain people. <laughs> I'm guilty. I, I would do it all the time. My, my family would be, oh, no, not again. <laughs> yeah, you can just see it in certain people that they hustle. We had a guy at Rapid Machining and a friend of mine, he exhibited the traits you're talking about. He was working at a subway shop. And he ended up coming in and becoming an estimator and having several other roles in the front office. He was a star team member. And my friend said, you're wasting your talents behind the counter here at Subway. Yeah, that's awesome how much hidden talent there is out there just (laughs) just waiting to be found. Yeah. Everyone 
is good at something. And I guess as a leader and a manager, it's your job to figure out how to let that out. Yeah, I'm kind of on the verge of, of maybe hiring somebody late Q2 or Q3 of this year, and I've already got an idea of who it's going to be. It's a engineering buddy of mine, and he wants engineering pay, so I'm going to have to kind of run the numbers and figure out if that's going to work. I think it could. He could basically be another me in terms of setup and machining and stuff. Don't know the situation or the individual, but what we really found out time and time again is you hire for attitude and you yep. can teach the skills. Yep. Well, Juan, thanks so much for taking the time to share your story with us. It's great hearing about all your different flavors of the first competition. And I really appreciate you taking the time unpaid to help fellow students, both, uh, you know, in high school and, and college, it sounds like to, you know, get them to dip their toes into the design and manufacturing world. And first, obviously gave a lot to you. It's so it's very cool to see that, that you gave back. Yeah, yeah. The volunteering is, is the right thing to do. It helps keep us all competitive, you know, as a country, basically. <laughs> we got to keep, right. keep training the young guys <laughs> and girls. Absolutely. And I, I think you said you listened to the podcast. There's hopefully other young engineers, manufacturing professionals. Maybe, maybe I'm lucky and there's some students listening, but they have a dream about starting their own company. And they gathered some good insights from you today on how you got going. Thanks for jumping in and, and being open about that stuff, talking about the instant quoting and a lot of good things here today. Anything yeah, else you want to add? No, I'm, I'm good to go. It's been fun. Thanks for having me on. Happy how can to, people so. reach you? <laughs> yeah, they can reach me uh, through my website. All the contact info's on there. It's uh, jaxmfg.com and that's J-A-X-M-F-G as in manufacturing.com. Mm -hmm. You can email me. It's all on the website. Super. Well, listeners, super inspiring chat today. Juan has made such an impact on so many people already in his career, and it came back. Karma is good, right? He gained the confidence and the skills and the knowledge to open his own shop. So I'll put out to you, what can you, your shop, your team do to help the local first team or even teams in your area. They could use your support. They could use monetary support and the time support. And in return, you'll be contributing, as Juan said, to the future of American manufacturing in a very gratifying way. Please consider it. Until next time, keep those spindles turning, those lasers cutting, and those students smiling. Over and out. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to The Job Shop Show.